welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we hope you join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We are located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After the message, take a moment and visit our website at vcctulare.com. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Today we began our journey of understanding who Jesus is. We've been talking a lot about John the Baptist here at the very beginning of, you know, of John, the writer of the book, and then John the Baptist as he writes about him. But today we began our journey at finding out who really Jesus is and was uh, to John, so therefore who he is to us. We have to begin to clear our minds uh, of the image that we already have of who Christ is. And that's kind of an interesting concept because we all grew up with this image of who Jesus is. Maybe we got it from mom and dad. Maybe Jesus and, and God is, is the, the father figure that's the disciplinary figure. Or maybe it's our, our mother, you know, the, the mother figure of, uh, in a sense of, of comforting us and taking care of us. Um, you know, maybe we got our image of God from our church. You know, maybe, uh, you know, a lot of America, for some reason, we think he's a white guy. Well, no, he's a Middle Eastern guy. He's Jewish. He's not, you know what I'm saying? So there's all different cultures that think of, of Christ differently. So we need to kind of set back and go, where should we get our view from? Our view should come from the Word of God, those who were there to experience uh, Christ for himself. So we need to start thinking, maybe we, the Holy Spirit needs to correct some of those images of, of Christ that we have in our own lives. Uh, some things will be totally confirmed. And other things we'll have to look at and go, oh, I kind of thought that, but that's not really right. So I need to change my view uh, because our image needs to come from the Scriptures. John is going to give us a story today about a miracle that Jesus did in the town of Cana. Uh, Cana, Cana, uh, Cana, you know, however you want to pronounce it. Over there they pronounce it Cana, but we know it as Cana, so we'll just say that uh, just so I don't confuse everybody. But Jesus is at a wedding and John is telling this story. And he gives, a, gives us a wonderful picture of who our Lord is. Can you imagine Jesus at your wedding? I mean, think about that for a second. He shows up and, you know, and, and, and the groom kind of looks at the rabbi and goes, well, we love you, rabbi, but I mean, this is, this is Jesus. I mean, scoot out of the way because Jesus is now going to perform the ceremony. I mean, but we know who he is. Back then, they didn't quite, he hadn't introduced himself into who he fully was at that time. But ironically, they didn't know who he was. What Jesus chooses to do at this wedding really involves his mother. And it's a really, uh, we also have a really weird image of who Jesus' mother is. Depending on whether we grew up, you know, Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox or maybe even none of the above. Our image of, of Mary is kind of skewed a little bit. All these images have to be, you know, uh, tested by a biblical standpoint. Or otherwise, you know, we'll start looking for, for, you know, Mary on tortilla chips, which is not a good place to look for Christ's mother, you know, and, and different things on side of walls. Where that, that's not necessarily how, how God, I, I've never seen God really introduce himself that way. That's not from the scripture that I've read. We have to really sit down and think through these images that we have. And we have to study the Word of God to have our foundation of these views. So here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to this wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, 
Woman, what is this? What does your your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, I could imagine. Oh well, he's not in a good mood today. What are you going to do? He's 30 years old and he's still living in the basement. I mean, you know, you know how mothers are. I mean, they're just like, come on, there's something here. You need to help me with this. But no, she didn't say that. She said, whatever he says to do, do it. Now there was six. Uh, now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So we're talking 150 to, to 180 gallons of water here. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up with the, uh, to the brim. And he said to them, draw, out, uh, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, it's kind of interesting. Who knew where it came from? The servants knew where it came from, but he did not. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. When everybody's there, he sets out the good wine. But you, I mean, look at this. When the guests have all drunk, then you put out the kind of the, the, the stuff that's not so good. But you have kept good wine until now. This, this, beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's so interesting that somehow this miracle manifested the glory of God and caused his disciples to start believing in him. And we know that the disciples from time to time struggled with this belief in who he was. And this is sometimes why there's conflicting stories about the calling of the disciples, you know. We read in John how he, he, he called uh, the disciples. And then we read in, uh, you know, another book. And, and there was, a, you know, a different kind of time frame to, to other disciples being called first. How do, you, how do you bring all those together? Well, I believe they're both true. I believe that as they struggled with this... Jesus said, follow me, and they followed him for a little while, and then they, you know, they, they were still working, they still had jobs, and then he'd go back to him and say, follow me, and they would follow him again. They had to, you know, they had jobs, they had to work. They hadn't become the 12 disciples yet, still hadn't decided what to do. So Jesus comes by and says, hey, guys, are you going to follow me or not? So they start to do this. Do you want to be fishers of men or out there on the lake? Which one is it, guys? Now we know that Nathaniel was from Cana. And we're not sure, as we talked about Nathaniel last week, we're not sure if this connection uh, to the wedding or not, or whether it was his mother, or the reason why they were at this wedding. You know, she's kind of helping out at the wedding. For some reason, she feels kind of ownership of, of this issue. So they came to this wedding, and, and he's sitting back watching things unfold. And sometimes I think this relates to our lives. Sometimes he sits back in our lives, I think, and watches how things unfold. Now, a Jewish wedding would typically last for a week. They would start somewhere like on a Tuesday or a Wednesday and go all the way to the next Tuesday or Wednesday. This is so different than our culture. We're like, okay, if this wedding isn't done in four hours, I'm leaving because I got other things to do. I mean, that's our American culture. But we're talking a whole week of, of, of time goes by for these weddings. So we were thinking that pretty early in the wedding days, they ran out of wine. This is a major faux pas. This is a major mistake. This isn't a minor mistake of interrupting worship at the wrong time. This is a major, major mistake here. And Mary somehow feels responsible. 
And there's usually a man, you know, today we call them wedding coordinators, but, but back then there's usually a man that's in charge of the wedding stuff. And, and he has no clue what's going on, which all the women here would go, well, that's typical because men have no clue, you know. But Mary understands what's happening here. So Mary goes to Jesus, much life, uh, like a wife would go to a husband. But her husband is, is, is uh, passed on at this point. He kind of disappears from the pit, uh, picture. And many scholars going back and reading things uh, figured out that, that he probably passed away at this time. So who steps up to, to help take care of his mother? Well, it's, her son does. So Mary goes to her son and, um, you know, her eldest son. And we don't know if she originally asked or was asking for a miracle. But we do know this. She's going, hey, eldest son of mine, hey, you, we need your help. They're totally out of wine. They're going to be totally embarrassed about this. You see, she was afraid of them running out of the wine, which is what this couple would have been remembered for, which is true. You know, when things don't go right at a wedding, you don't remember, oh, they got married. You remember, oh, did you hear what happened at that wedding? Because that's human nature. That's what this couple would have been reminded for. You know, we, we always remembering, uh, remember the embarrassing or bad stuff that happens. You know, the, the man, man, the groom fainted. <laughs> oh, man, can you believe that? The groom fainted right there. I remember a co-worker of mine at a Christian college that I worked for. She asked me to do the, the wedding for her and um, her fiancé. Uh, she was my co-worker, and he actually worked for me. So it was kind of fun. And, and uh, in the middle of the ceremony, I'm talking about them and saying some great things about Cameron, and I just keep going on and on, and, and you know, just how wonderful Cameron is. And then my mind went blank. You know, that, that's why I have 12 pages of notes, because my mind goes blank in these situations. And I, my mind just went blank, because I kind of went off my notes, and I go, and Aaron is so... Nice. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> she just kind of looked at me and we all kind of had a laugh and we kept going. But that's what we remember at these situations. We always remember these things. And Mary was afraid that this couple would be remembered for this. But even more than the embarrassment, it was an insult because the wine represented joy. It also represents the joy for us. The Holy Spirit's often equated to the wine, the joy of our lives. But even in weddings, today we have symbolisms. But a Jewish wedding, you know, everything had a meaning. And one of these times, maybe on a Sunday night, we'll do, we'll do a, a, a little uh, lesson deal. They had seven things they did at, at a Jewish wedding, and we'll go through that. And then we'll, we'll have a worship team that will just worship, and you guys can walk around and go to those seven different, you know, stations, if you want to call it that, and just kind of think through those things. I think it would be cool to kind of do on a Sunday night or something like that. But everything in a Jewish wedding had a symbol uh, or, or symbolized something. And the wine says to the bride, I have so much joy in you becoming my wife. Because the man was supposed to supply the wine. So first he's insulting his bride and then he's, then you have the guest. He's saying to the guest, this is a tremendous joy that you are here at my wedding. And when you run out of the wine, this is kind of like when that Family member comes to visit and they've kind of worn out the welcome and you forget to put the towels in the bathroom for them in the morning or you just don't go to the grocery store for a week and the food kind of runs out and you're just like, 
Oh, sorry, we don't have any more food. You know, it's kind of that, okay, it's time for you to go now. And when the wine runs out at a wedding, that's what they're saying. It's time for the guests to go ahead and go. We've kind of ran out the party. You know, we're we're ready to move on with our lives. Go ahead and leave. Because people will be coming from all over uh, the region to come to this wedding. It's not like, um, you know, today we just hop in our car or hop in a plane and we go back home. No. For them, they had to travel by foot, so it was a lot longer and so forth. So it was a major insult for them. So you have this water setting there. And the reason why they don't drink water is it made them sick oftentimes. It was safer to drink the wine than it was to water. And it's not about alcohol and getting drunk. The, the alcohol content was a little lower, but we know that they did get drunk because they, you know, the Bible preaches against being drunk. And this, you know, they would have frowned upon the water. But to say... Sorry, we've ran out of wine. Would say, we don't care about your safety. We don't care about your health. We're just going to get water out of the well, and you can drink it. Here, just have some water. We just couldn't afford any more wine. And Mary starts to feel for them. It's like she owns the insult. And just like later on, she has this, this overwhelming you know, sorrow because her son is dying on the cross. She kind of owns that, the same concept here. She kind of owns it. She's just that type of person. And everything we see about this lady speaks volumes. And I wish we could see more because the Bible is really silent about you know, Mary. So, so religion tries to fill in the blanks, and that's really too bad. Because a lot of the blanks that are filled in just aren't accurate, aren't biblical. Because she is such a great person. I wish we had more information. But as a young woman, an angel appears to her and says, you're going to have a son. And this young woman responds. You know, she asks a couple of questions. And then she says, I am your servant, Lord. It's somebody we should hold up in high esteem, but not worship. And here are the last words that we have from her. And what are they? She says, whatever he says, do it. What an awesome thing to say. And this also relates to us today. Whatever my son says to you, the next thing he says to you, do it. You do that and you watch what happens. See, this is really cool because growing up Protestant, I didn't really learn much about Mary. And I think that was a reaction of, of the times and, you know, off of, you know, the Catholic Church and their view of Mary and so forth. And, and I'm not trying to bag on that or be negative about that. I'm just saying that that's how I grew up. And it was kind of a, they, so we, we almost like ignored Mary, you know, like hands off because we don't want to talk about that. And I think that that's a little too bad about that because she really is an incredible woman. And this is what she says to us today. Whatever he says to do, do it. Because we're his servants. What would you do today if I said to you, Jesus is going to talk to you in the next 24 to 48 hours. Whatever he says to do, do it. Whatever this is, confirm it in Scripture first, because I wouldn't want to ever, or I wouldn't want you to take somebody else's word. You know, they come to you, oh, God told me to tell you this. And and you go, okay, and take it for... No, no, you've got to confirm that stuff in His Word. You've got to confirm that stuff with godly people, you know, to make sure you don't jump off the side of a, you know, building. And I know that Jesus told me to tell you to do that. I mean, come on. That wouldn't go with Scripture. But once something is confirmed, then do that. Do the next thing that Jesus tells you to do. And, and living this way in life, wouldn't that be so cool? We would call it a spirit-filled life that he wants us to live. 
And this is where we see Jesus turn water into wine in our lives. Because you have become a servant of the Lord. So Jesus asked Mary, and it's kind of fun, Jesus kind of tests her a little bit. He says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet came. And the woman part sounds a lot, you know, pretty harsh to us, you know. Because today if we, you know, look at somebody and go, woman, I mean, that's a very negative thing, right? I mean, if I came up to you and said that, I'd get a lot of bad looks, you know. But it's not necessarily that type of, of word. This is a very respectful word. Now, when I moved from, uh, from Texas out here to California, I, you know, I, I have this habit. I think it's a good habit. I think we've lost this habit. But as a child, if I didn't say yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, or no, ma'am, to one of my parents, my parents would just kind of knock me upside the head a little bit. I mean, not knock me down, but just kind of like remind me, no, you need to be saying yes, sir, or no, ma'am. Alan, come here. Did you say yes, ma'am, to that lady? Why not? You know, it was a sign of respect. So then I move out to California, and I'm like, ma'am. And people are looking at me horrified. You just call me ma'am. I'm not that old. You know, I mean, it's a different culture. And I think we've lost some of that. But this, is, this word here is a respectful word. And it's not, an, you know, an offensive word. It's a respect, you know, a mother type of word. But he does say... Um, you know, I am your son, but why, why are you doing this? Are you in charge of what I'm supposed to be doing? And sometimes, uh, you know, we do this with the Lord. Have you ever prayed a really, really good prayer? You walk away going, man, that, that was a good prayer, and you knew it. You know, biblically based, not very selfish prayer. And our attitude is, Lord, hello, come on, come on. Did you hear that? And sometimes the Lord just stops and says... Are you still letting me be in charge? Because it doesn't sound like you're letting me be in charge. So he's respectful, but at the same time he's saying, Are are you in charge of me? You're my mom, but you're not necessarily in charge. See, our reaction would be to shut down, you know, when we should press on. And Mary's kind of the same way. She doesn't just shut down. The Lord likes to talk to us. Do you discuss things with the Lord? Do you have conversations with the Lord? We're so afraid we're going to offend God that we don't ever really talk to God. We're so afraid that He's he's just going to squish us like a bug. I mean, He's holy, but He's asking us, come talk with me. He likes having those discussions back and forth. He doesn't like having one-sided discussions. I come to God and I just tell Him all the bad things that I did and ask for forgiveness and go, well, thank you for forgiving me, God, and just leave. He doesn't like that. He likes the back and forth. When Jesus challenges Mary... Mary could have said, okay, just forget it. You're right. Don't worry about it, God. But in reality, you know, that that, our prayers have to go further than this. Sometimes when God says no, He just means no for now. Sometimes when God says no, He just means wait for a little while. Sometimes when God says no, He just means the timing is off. But He still wants us to come and ask Him. Now it can be, I mean, when you know it's a no, I mean, you understand what I'm saying. It's like going to a parent when they say, no, no, not right now or whatever, compared to a parent that says, no, you're not doing that. Develop a relationship with God. Spend enough time with Him that you can discern between the two. And if we just go, well, I prayed about it, nothing happened. What good is that? I guess I should forget about it. And if this is how we are, we're never going to to see what God is going to do in our lives. Are you going to see the Lord in this book? Are you really going to see the Lord in this book? 
You have to start opening your mind to go, Lord, show me who you are. And we're going to see Jesus go off on some guys. And we're going to be, whoa, whoa, a little too much truth there, God. He's just going to go off on them. Go easy on these people, God. And they just don't know. You know, his responses are going to shock some people sometime. And Mary could have, you know, had a really angry reaction to her son right now. Well, I'll tell you exactly what you're going to do, young man. You're supposed to be the creator in the world, and I raised you up, and along with your brothers. Now, just show your mother some respect here, and do what I say. Why? Because I said so. You know how you know that motherly aspect that comes out. She could have been this way, but she isn't, and she doesn't completely understand what's about to happen either. She just says to the servants. Just do whatever he says to do. So Jesus says, hey, those six jars over there that are made of stone, go ahead and grab those. You know, it's approximately 180 gallons or so. That will do it. Now, that's a fair amount of wine. That's not overly huge. I mean, they would have multiple guests and over multiple days. You've got to remember, it supplies it for a long time. But these are not wineskins. These are water jugs. You have to go, well, wine usually comes in wineskins, not, not, not stone jars. So what's the difference here? What is that meaning here? Why so much water that's not for drinking? These aren't even clay pots that are used for food. These are stone. These are, you know, set aside for religious purification. As you start reading the backgrounds and come to find out why, you know. Uh, So what is, you know, religious purification of the time? Well, even today, if you know an Orthodox Jew, or if you go to Israel, in all the restaurants that are blessed as Orthodox, you will see a pitcher and a sink, um, you know, right inside the door for ritual cleaning of the hands. It's like where, you know, it's a good, you know, adoption. We've adopted this son or daughter. Have you, have you washed your hands before you, eat, you know, eaten? It's kind of a, that same concept, but it was also a religious thing for them. You know, it's really cool. It's, it's cleanliness. But they're purifying themselves. They're saying that whatever deeds my hands have done, may you cleanse those off of me before I take, you know, before I start eating what you've given me to eat today. Before I sit down and eat the things that God has blessed me with. It's called a ritual purification. So Jesus takes these pots and does something really weird. He desecrates these pots. He makes them unholy with wine. Why does Jesus somehow feel like he has permission to desecrate these pots? These pots are not owned by the family. They were brought in by, by the, the rabbi. This is the rabbi's stuff, and the rabbi would have been in charge of these things. And he would have had ownership of these things, and he would have been like, okay, everybody, before we get started, the stone pots, are, don't mess with them. That's my stuff. Don't, don't touch them, just leave them alone. The rabbi is not going to be pleased when he hears about this. These pots have been desecrated. He's not going to go, hey, hey, no, okay, no big deal. It was for the bride and groom. He's going to be very angry about this. Uh, you know, he, he will have to do a whole ceremony again. You know, he'll have to you know, make these pots mitvah again. He would have to, to wash these and cleanse these, uh, to make these pots, you know, be, to be able to be used again for what they're supposed to be used again. For them to continue being Jewish, these pots would have to be cleansed again. 
And Jesus comes into John in chapter 2 and starts messing with Judaism. He starts playing around with it. And, and you know, no wonder he kill, they killed him later for this. But Jesus stumps right all over their rituals. And he just didn't do it unintentionally. He didn't, you know, he, he did it to make a point. And what would that point be? He's saying, I, the creator of the universe, and here now, the real rabbi is in the building. You do not need these pots anymore. In fact, you will never need them again to come to me. All you do is wash your hands with this water in these pots. This is all you can do is wash off the dirt. Jesus is saying, in the middle of all this stuff, I am bringing to you a new wine. I'm going to bring change after change after change after change. John puts this miracle at the very beginning of his ministry to say, look out for Jesus. He brings real change to this world. His presence in the middle of Judaism starts this thing. Just wait and later in, in chapter 2. He's going to go into the temple. And if you think he caused problems here at this wedding for this rabbi, wait until he gets into the temple. It's just amazing what kind of problems he will, you know, he will have there. The high priest is not going to be happy at all. Jesus and the, the picture that John is painting of him is revolutionary. It's radical. It's controversial. But the servants are having a blast because they're witnessing what is really happening. So what is happening? They take these stone jars and they fill them to the brim with water. No room to to mix anything else into them. And Jesus says to them in verse 7, Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, "Draw uh, Draw out some now and take it to the master of the feast. So what they're doing is taking a, a reed stem. Basically, it's, it, it's a reed that grows in the, you know, in the river areas, and, and they're kind of hollow in the middle. And they would you know, chop them off and, and make something, and they would stick the, the reeds down in the pot, cover up the top, and draw it out, and then let, it, you know, let the hand off of it, and it would pour into the pitcher. So it's like a big straw. You know how kids play with their straw during the mill? Or those big kids that we call adults play with their straws during the mill? The same kind of concept. But they would use reeds to do this. So they take it out, and they put it into the, the pitcher. And the servant, I can imagine the servant sitting there going, Rabbi, because they know Jesus is the rabbi. He would have had certain clothes on and so forth. You want us to take some of this water to the master? I'm, he's not going to be pleased with me. I mean, the master ceremony is like the guy in charge, the man you don't want to mess with. You don't want to you know, bring the small stuff to him. And Jesus is sitting there going, yeah, yeah, that water right there. Take your reed, dip it in there, draw some out, and go give it to him. And he takes this drink, and what does he say? Why would you give me water? No. He says, wow, this stuff is great. Wow, where did this stuff come from? And he doesn't know what's happening. So he walks over to the bridegroom and says, you old dog, you pulled a fast one, man. You brought out the good stuff later on? Oh, man, people are going to remember you for this one. This stuff is great. You saved the good stuff. People are going to remember you. And the groom is, is clueless, you know. He's sitting there going, you saved the best for last. And the groom's like, oh, okay, well, I'll thank my wine, steward. And Jesus, he's sitting back, he doesn't say anything. He's probably sitting across the room thinking, you have no idea what you just said to the master of ceremonies. You have no idea what you just said. You saved the best for last. 
Because we're talking about Christ here. Who is the last? Christ. You saved the best for last. And no one knows that this man has just said some prophecy. You saved the best for last. And Jesus is the best. And here he comes. All religion falls short. All religion runs out. And I could imagine as the master of ceremonies going, man, this stuff is really good. The, the rest of the, the group kind of quieting down going, what, what's going on over there? Oh, they got, they got some good wine still left? Oh, this is great. So many of us become believers in Jesus when everything else in our life runs out. When the wine has, has ran out. When whatever you're doing that makes you happy runs out, you come to God. Whoever it is you're trying to be, when the game is over, Jesus shows up and comes to your party. Jesus comes along and says, you know what? And according to John chapter 2, when you run out, I'm going to be there for you. And the people around you will see the miracle in your life and they will notice it. See, we see the miracle here. The master of ceremonies and and the groom, you know, do they see the miracle? No. Who sees the miracle? The servants. Mary. And Mary's just doing, you know, what is godly. This is like, you know, a prayer. We need to recognize that what is happening around us, and we need to start going to Jesus. Jesus is, you know, the wine is almost out. Jesus, we need to do something here. See, the one who prays and the one who served, they're the ones that get to see the miracle here. And that is encouraging for us because so many times, you know, we we ask Jesus to see the miracle, but we're not around to see it because we're not really serving. We're not really involved. We're not really doing those things. And when I say involved, yes, it's good to be involved here. We, We need more servants around here to do different things. But that's not my main point. Where are you serving? Because you, you can serve in your job. You can serve in, in your retirement. You can serve in those places. Because everywhere you go, you can bring Jesus. And then if you do what Jesus says, do what Jesus wants you to do, that is serving. And you get to see the miracles when you're serving. You want to see a miracle? Then ask for it. Ask for a miracle in the middle of things. Even when you, you don't know how it's going to happen. You don't know how it's going to happen. And number two, be in the kitchen when you do ask for the miracle. You've got to be involved. You've got to be there. Did you get that? Because so many of us, you know, we, we sit back and, and we go, Oh, Lord, bless my life. And we sit there with our one cup of wine, and we're happy as can be. When we could have been back in the kitchen going, Okay, well, Lord, what do you want me to do? We could be going, man, pour another pitcher. Wow, th- this is great. Can you believe this? 180 gallons of the best stuff, the best stuff we've ever tasted. This is a servant of God, the church of God. New wine is being poured out on this fellowship. And I say, get involved. I mean, we, uh, today the numbers are low, but I mean, we have probably 30 people gone. The Lord has increased our number. Get involved. Love, laugh, and play together. Why do I get involved? Because I'm a servant of God. I'm on my feet. This is, you know, that is it. Just, we need to start getting excited. But, but Lord, I don't have many abilities. 
You know, how, does, how, do, how much ability does it take sometimes to, to pass a communion plate? How much ability does it take to, to serve in, in certain areas? Sometimes the Lord just says, I just want to get you involved, and then I'll start showing you your abilities, and I'll start putting you in different places and, and do different things with you. Lord, show me my ability. How can I bring, bring you to my work environment? But, but I don't have the ability of an evangelist. Are you living your life reflecting Christ? If you do, you have the ability to be an evangelist. Why? Because your life is evangelism. How you live it speaks volumes about who you are and who you serve. It's, a, it's amazing that we don't realize that more. We need to start looking around and say, what is needed? Wow, this party is almost out of wine. Jesus, help us with this. See, we need people who are willing to say, wow, they recognize it. And then we need people to say, wow, how can I help solve that? It's so funny how sometimes people come along and say, man, you had such a big part of that. That's so awesome. And we're like, well, <laughs> not really. I mean, it was big for me, but, you know, according to the whole process, I was a little, all I did was carry the jugs out to the master of ceremony. And he thinks I'm the greatest because I brought it to him. But all I did was carry it. All I did really was serve. We needed to look around and, and start saying, where can I do these things? Now, what amazing to me is that he even cared enough to do this. Because he's the creator of the universe. Guys, you know, I really only have three and a half years here. This is the beginning of my ministry. I'm not going to waste my time turning water into wine. I mean, I got bigger things to deal with. I mean, they're going to try to kill me in three and a half years. I mean, we're, we're at a, I really shouldn't even be at this wedding. I just don't have time for it. No, he's not like that at all. It's so funny how self-important sometimes we feel. Instead of just enjoying things. I mean, the creator of the universe went to a friend's wedding. The creator of the universe wants to be involved in my life. How cool is that? So he comes in and he shows up and he celebrates with them. And this is the thing that I love about Jesus. He's not just our, I'm in the middle of crisis. I need God. I need Jesus in the middle of this crisis type of guy. He shows up to the wedding. He's not just the call on me when you need me, Jesus. He's a show-up kind of guy. He's involved in our lives. Jesus wants to be involved in our everyday life. He does. In our everyday decisions. You know, with all the new shows coming on, you know, this fall on TV, you know, some of them are, are okay, some of them are not so okay. But, you know, it's kind of interesting to, to watch the first couple of episodes to find out, okay, is this going to be a decent show or not? Do I want to waste my time? Which I probably shouldn't be, but do I, you know, where do I want to put my time? And I was watching a show the other day, and I thought, oh, this has an interesting concept to it. It's kind of cool. And I start watching the first episode, and, uh, you know, about 20 minutes into it, I'm like, ooh, that was kind of bad. Okay, well, let me keep watching it. And then all of a sudden, oh, I, mm, I don't know if this whole show is going to be like that. I don't know. And by the third time it comes around, I'm just like, okay, I, I need to. No, I'm not going to watch that one. <laughs> that one, everybody else in the world can watch. I'm not, that's just not for me. Jesus wants to be involved in those little decisions in our everyday life that make such a big difference to us. That is it. I mean, it's just amazing. You know, I want to point out this. Jesus is not about the good angel, bad angel on our shoulders. He's not a, should I do this, should I not do this, should I do this, should I not do this. He wants to celebrate with us. He wants to be involved in our life. Not just tell us where we are wrong. God wants to do a new thing amongst us. 
a beautiful thing. He wants to turn the ordinary things in our life into the best things that have ever happened. He wants to go, you know what, it was water, but it's the best wine you're ever going to taste. This thing that you're going to do now is just amazing, and I want you to be involved in that. Now, one thing that I really didn't go into today is, is how this is also representative of Israel. And how Israel was supposed to be the best thing. They were supposed to be the, the wine that showed the world. That, that, that they were supposed to be the people that, 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 you know, that, that revealed God to the world. Enough to the point where the world would go, I want some of that. Because that is awesome. But instead they turned it into something that just wasn't even good. They turned out what started out good into something that was ritualistic. That had no feeling that had no relationship. It was just something we did. I don't want our religion to be that. I don't want our relationships to be that. Jesus came along to turn ordinary things into extraordinary things. Because He wants us to live a holy life. One that is pleasing to Him. And with His help, He pours that holiness into our life and makes new wine that people can recognize. People come along and say, wow, look at that. Hey guys, come here. Have you, have you ever tasted this? Man, this is the best. This is how he wants to use your life today. He can take everyday life, everyday situations, your everyday whatever it is that you do, and turn it into something great when you follow him. All you have to do is be like a servant and do whatever he tells you to do. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you turn me into more of a servant. I pray that you turn us into more of a servant. Whether it's in our family, the the things that you say, this is what I want you to do. Whether it's in our marriage, whether it's in our schooling, or in our school, in my class, in my job, in my church. Whatever it is, Lord, that you want us to do, I pray that you you just show us clearly. But allow us not to sit back. Allow us to, to, to feel you turning ordinary things into extraordinary things. I thank you so much for even attempting to do that in my life and sometimes succeeding when I allow you to do that. I pray, Lord, that you help open our eyes and my eyes to who you are that you can radically change my life. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you, that He never turn from you. In this world that wants you to just be ordinary, irrelevant, may He just do exciting things in your life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.